0: Well, father we are just grateful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word father we we thank you that before the foundation of the universe you've called us appointed us uh, you have uh, changed and transformed us and that you have revealed revealed us uh, revealed to us who you are in your word and as we study your word i pray that we will be impressed by your will for our lives that we won't resist it but embrace it in jesus name amen well as a young pastor at my former church i had the opportunity to work on the missions committee and as a result i got to interact with many of our missionaries that we supported including one by the name of dale sherman now, Dale Sherman was a graduate of Biola University in 1958, and he went to work for an outfit called Village Missions. You guys ever heard of Village Missions? It's a, a ministry where pastors raise support so that they can plant churches in rural communities that can't afford a full-time pastor. And so during his 40-some years of ministry, he strengthened four different churches in rural California, little deadbeat towns that no other pastor wanted to go to. He strengthened the churches and then he would hand them off to a younger pastor who would continue the work. And so he got to know me as kind of a fresh-faced fresh face pastor, recent graduate from seminary, newly married, and he, he took an interest in me. And he would just give me loads of advice, but there was one piece of advice that really resonated uh, with me. He told me, Dave, learn how to preach an encouraging message. Lots of young pastors can preach a convicting message. It's pretty easy to do. But it's hard to preach an encouraging message. Now as a young pastor, My motto was, the more convicting, the better, right? You don't just preach on giving. You talk about how in this congregation, many of you don't give because you have hearts that are bottomless pits of greed, right? If you're not sharing your faith, I'm not even sure if you're saved, right? There's kind of this confrontation where you are zealous for the Lord. You see the money changers in the temple, and you're wondering why people aren't flipping over tables, You don't understand why older people don't share the same zeal for godliness that you share and you interpret their, well, their lack of passion as apathy or compromise. But here Dale is telling me to learn to preach an encouraging message. And what I didn't really experience that is that life has a way of kind of beating you up. Right, when you're a young man, uh, you haven't experienced, well, You know, the pain of that unresolved fight in your marriage. You haven't dealt with the the disappointment of realizing that not only are you a, a bad father, you can be downright awful at times. You haven't plateaued in your career. You haven't been rejected for that promotion. You haven't been humbled by people not liking you, not responding to you. Uh, You haven't been brought low by illness and physical weakness. I mean, as far as you're concerned, your strength is growing and you're going to ascend like you're a hockey stick, right? Just go straight up the ladder. And yet he told me, you need to preach an encouraging message. In other words, Dave, you need to learn how to be gentle. You need to learn how to be gentle. Because at some point in time, right, you're going to fail. At some point in time, you're going to really do something that could potentially destroy your marriage, perhaps get you fired from a job. Perhaps you'll succumb to some temptation that you thought was over and it just resurfaced again. And, and during that moment, who would you be drawn to? The prophetic finger pointing pastor who can find sin in everything, or the gentle leader? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, you see Paul's heart for Timothy as his old and wise and pastor is imparting some advice to his young protege, and, and he gives him a positive vision for who he's supposed to be as a pastor. And he tells him in 2 Timothy 2, through 26 so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Essentially, what what Paul is calling Timothy to do is to be a, a shepherd like Jesus. And Jesus was gentle and lowly, right? The disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven? Right? They weren't gentle, but Jesus was. Yeah, that was his manner. He had great power, he had great strength that he chose not to use. He decided to be gentle and treat people with grace in ways that they did not deserve. Now, he did confront, but it was always with the hope of restoration. He always had a heart of gentleness. And so this is a message that is given to really many of the, the young men who desire to be pastors, which is a small handful of you, right? But, but there is a broader scope of many young men who are going to grow to become the, the leaders of our church, the future deacons, elders, Sunday school teachers. It's also a message to uh, many of the young ladies who are going to rise to leadership positions. And so it might be easy for you older generations, right? You get tired of people saying, okay, boomer to you to say, go get him, Pastor Dave. And to you, I would give this remembrance from 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, right? When a young man is called to lead, they're given an energy and a drive and a courage and a strength that is wonderful, but it has to be tamed. And, and frankly, I think even as a, as a church, um, there's a real temptation to want to be a rowdy bunch, Right? Yeah, we kind of have a a fighting spirit that is pervading in evangelicalism. And and so this call to be gentle is really countercultural, right? People are protesting, they're fighting, they're advocating. And yet here we are to step back, not use our strength, and to be gentle. And, And that's the way of the master, it's the way of the king, it's the way of Jesus, and it's not easy for us to really think it's going to work right people might walk all over you if you're gentle you got to fight because otherwise who's going to fight for you right there's there's that tendency And yet here we see that the way of the master the way of jesus is that he wants us to be gentle to restrain our strength to deal with people in a gentle way in a gentle manner and he calls his leaders to become gentle leaders And if you're not fighting for this, if you're not trying to develop this, you won't revert to it. There's a reason why young men are targeted. You have to fight to be gentle. Now to do this, you have three commands. Seek sanctification, select your arguments, and save your opponents. It could be seek to save your opponents, but I was working with the outline, so bear with me, right? So look at the first point. Seek sanctification. Now, previously, Paul gives a call to personal holiness. That's what we talked about last week. 20 through 21, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so there's a call to be holiness, and to be holy is to be like Jesus. Agreed? To be holy is not about avoiding rock music, right? It's not about not smoking or drinking. It's about being like Christ, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. Is to emulate him in every way. And so Paul gets more specific with Timothy about this call to holiness, and he says in verse 22, "...so flee youthful passions." And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So notice twin commands you flee, you run away from, you depart, and then pursue. It's a picture of repentance, right? Where you, you flee lies and you tell the truth, right? You, you flee uh, unedifying talk and you pursue wholesome talk. You flee youthful passions and you pursue faith, love, peace, and righteousness. And so there's a lot of discussion about these youthful lusts, and when you hear the word lust in youth, you immediately think of pornography, sexual lust. And while that is very much an issue with young men and young women, and old men and old women, what's being talked about here? Um, are probably two general categories of sin that are specific to young men. They are hot-headedness and harshness, okay? Hot-headedness and harshness. It's the temptation not to be gentle. Um, so you look at being a hothead, right? It's somebody who's quick to fly off the handle. It's somebody who, whose emotions tend to kind of rise up. They, they lack self-control with their emotions. In fact, it's interesting uh, that this is, 2 Timothy is part of the pastoral epistles, all written around the same time, dealing with the same topics. And in Titus, Paul is writing to another protege, and he gives specific commands to older and younger men. And he tells older men in Titus 2:2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in, and in steadfastness, right? There's, there's multiple commands given to older men. And then he keeps on going, and he talks about younger men. He says in Titus 2.6, likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. It's as if he's saying, if you're a younger man, just try to get this one thing right. right? Just learn how to control your emotions. Uh, I think about Travis Kelsey. All right? I'm already excited about the Chiefs. Gave up on the Royals a couple weeks ago, but I am excited about the Chiefs. Now, early in his career, Travis Kelsey was known for taunting and sportsmanlike conduct. He threw a towel at the referee and got ejected from the game, right? He was known as a, as a hothead, right? And he had to learn how to control his emotions as he got older and wiser, Right, Proverbs twenty nine eleven. a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And so if you are a young man and you get insulted or somebody rubs you the wrong way, before you kind of let them have it and go all Vesuvius on people, you learn to hold it back. You don't be a hothead. You practice self-control with your emotions. Now secondly, and kind of related to it, is an attitude of, of harshness. Where you don't want to be severe or harsh or tell people the way it is. One of the most famous examples of this is in 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon just passed away and he gave his kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And so a new administration is taking root and some representatives from the northern tribes uh, come to Rehoboam. And they say, you know, Solomon, we love him. But man, he was kind of hard on us. He, he kind of made our life really difficult to kind of serve him and serve his projects. And do you think he could just kind of just turn it down a bit? And so Rehoboam talks to his father's counselors, older, wiser men. And they say in 1 Kings 12, 7, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Rehoboam, they've got a point. Give them what they want. Turn it down, and they will gladly serve you and be loyal to you. So Rehoboam kind of considers that, and then he, he basically calls in his posse, you know, the young friends that he grew up with, And he asked them, so what should I do? What should I do? And this is the advice they give in 1210. Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Who do you think I am that you just walk in and tell me what to do? I'm the king. You think my father was tough? Wait till you get a load of me. Right? He's the king. He had the authority. He was harsh with them. And what do you know? They rebelled and the kingdom was split. See, the problem with Rehoboam was he wasn't afraid of starting a war. He wasn't afraid of just laying down the law. He thought because he had, inform, he had formal authority that they had to do what he said. He didn't realize that even if you are in charge, you still have to earn the respect of the people in your care, and that's not done by harshness. It's done by, by gentleness. And one of the temptations with young men is that you are strong and you are good at, at fighting and and there can be a temptation to want to find venues or arenas where you can use your strength. Right? You think to yourself, you know, I spent three years getting a black belt in karate, and I'm not just about breaking boards and cinder blocks, right? I, I need to find some place to show what I can do. And so you're strong, you invite a fight, and social media has given you an opportunity to basically display how you can hang with the best. And in the process of this combat, you can be harsh with people and basically hurt the people that you're trying to help. You see, that's just the temptation of young men, and and there just has to be a sense of just self-awareness, right? Am I being harsh? Am I being hot-headed? And there's other sins too, but I think this is sufficient to kind of make the point. So instead of being harsh and hot-headed, what are you to do? You're to flee useful lust and you pursue righteousness, right living, living with integrity, honoring the Lord and honoring other people in your actions. You live with faith, believing, trusting in God, understanding that sometimes your strength can't do too much. Sometimes you have to pray. Sometimes you have to trust God. Sometimes you have to leave it to the Lord. Love, right? where people need to be convinced that you truly love them and you care about them. You're not trying to build your brand or build your platform. You're trying to shepherd and help them. And then the last one is peace. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You know, Peace is not something that is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of, of wisdom and godliness, right? Sometimes it's better to seek peace by diplomacy by talking through the issues than by going to war or threatening war. And you do this along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. You choose the right counselors and the right friends, people who will nurture these things instead of inflame you like Rehoboam chose his young friends. And ultimately, what all of this is, is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Galatians 5, through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Self-control and gentleness. And so this is my... My charge to all you young men, you know, before you want to take on those liberals, fight those internet battles, wage the good warfare against those false teachers, before you fight that fight, seek your sanctification and use your energy first and foremost to fight against your own sin. Fight against those youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace use your strength to fight your sin first before you take it outside secondly select your arguments not every argument is worth getting into have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies you know that they breed quarrels now this is not a prohibition against responsible debate they or responsible dialogue sometimes you do have to kind of mix it up. But this is an argument against foolish and ignorant controversies, things that will just suck you in. I know as a former member of the debate team, I I really enjoy the tactic of, of arguing and debating. And if I learned something new in seminary, that was a chance to kind of challenge so-and-so who didn't believe in young earth creationism, or so-and-so who embraced psychological integration into the Christian faith, right? There was this this idea that as I was learning, I was learning with the context of how I can use this in debate and arguing, right? And over the years, I, I have softened a bit, and I learned something about myself when I get into those kinds of debates. Now, I've written a number of articles on Roman Catholic theology that are on the internet, and, and every once in a while, I'll, I'll get a, um, an inquiry from somebody who read my article, and they want to challenge me on it. And And when I read the language, I could tell that they read a bunch of Roman Catholic apologists who have explained, this is how you argue with an evangelical Christian, and these are the gotcha questions, this is how you set the stage. And and I have learned that when I engage in those types of arguments and those internet debates, that I become a distracted husband, a distracted father, a distracted pastor, and all my time is just waiting to see what the next response is and is not productive. And so I've kind of learned to kind of back off and, and sometimes I have guys give me guilt trips. Don't you care about my soul? According to your theology, you think I'm going to hell. And, and I just respond with Matthew 7:6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Okay, maybe that's not that gentle, but it got the point across. <laughs> The point is, sometimes you just need to know when somebody's unpersuadable. And they just want to get into a fight. And Jesus right here in this passage tells you when you just, you just walk away. It's not, it's not worth the fight. Because fights often bring out the worst in you. Even if you're fighting for a good cause. Proverbs fifteen eighteen, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. That he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out of water, so quit before a quarrel breaks out. Proverbs 23, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. And so before you mix it up, before you engage, before you read that Facebook post and you think, somebody's just got to tell him like it is, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it is it worth a setback in your sanctification will it distract you from what the lord has called you to will incite passions within you that um, will make it more difficult for you to flee youthful lust are you the person who's supposed to address the issue right select your arguments and should you get into one remember that your goal needs to be to save your opponents. Look at verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. Uh, essentially, the the goal is not to win the argument. The goal is to save the soul. Your objective is not to crush the opposition, but to save the soul. And he sets it up by identifying that the Lord's servant. Okay, isn't it interesting how Timothy is to regard himself? Ministry is not a place to build his brand, build his platform to to show the world what an awesome pastor he is. His goal is to serve the Lord by serving his people. He takes a humble approach. Now, there are times where as a Lord's servant, you do have to fight. Obviously, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who we learned from the context, were teaching a damning doctrine, and they had to be addressed. But it is to be done in a very careful way. If you're a neurosurgeon operating to remove a tumor, you are very delicate because you don't wanna cause any collateral damage. And frankly, when there is church conflict, even over a good reason, there can be collateral damage. Does that make sense? And so, how do you go about addressing these things in the most gentle, restrained way possible, right? I mean, we learn from Galatians 1, you, know, you are to restore an errant brother in a spirit of gentleness, right? There is, there is a time to confront and deal with it, but it has to be done in a gentle manner. And obviously, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? You value peace. And sometimes the best way to deal with it is through, let's say, diplomacy, right? Before you get into a war, you take every effort to deal with it as diplomatically as possible. Possible, and you only get into the conflict when all the other options are exhausted. And so you don't view men who do that or women who do that as compromisers, right? They're sellouts because they're not immediately fighting the cause that you think they should fight. It could be that they're taking a different approach even though they share the same convictions. They have a different audience, different people, and this is true as is a lot of times we kind of evaluate the broader body of Christ and we kind of wonder, what are they doing? Well, they're not telling us what their secret thoughts are and their calculations and everything, but sometimes you just have to think, perhaps they're addressing this issue in a more diplomatic fashion because they don't want to be quarrelsome. And so, should they fight? They fight with the objective of saving the other person. And this means that you adopt the following tactics, that you fight with kindness, that the concerns that you're bringing up is done not to prove yourself, but is done out of kindness to them. It's your manners, your demeanor, is your approach. It's obvious to them that you're bringing this up in their lives because you truly care about them. Secondly, he says that you are to be able to teach the way you persuade is by teaching. A lot of times, if you have a powerful personality, you would think that the way to get your way to persuade them is to overpower them with your personality. But all you're doing right there is kind of bullying them into submission. Your goal is to save them, and that is to teach and to persuade their heart by bringing up the clear teachings of the scriptures. And secondly, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure, right? If you are faithfully teaching, sometimes pastors get fired because of their own malpractice. They failed to adequately teach many of these things to prevent some of these other issues from coming into the church. I tell young pastors when you're starting a ministry, teach on conflict resolution within two years of ministry because it'll save your bacon someday, right? You teach, you prepare, you're always defending the flock to keep the war out of the congregation. Thirdly, patiently enduring evil. Sometimes when you mix it up, people throw names at you. They challenge you, they make fun of you, and, and you can't make it all about you. You can't be touchy, you can't be resentful. In the words of one commentator, there may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does greater damage to the Christian church. Being personally attacked is part of ministry. Don't make it personal. Don't make them want to grovel and repent to you before they repent to God. Your goal is to restore them to the Lord, and then the rest will take care of itself. You don't take it personally. And then you correct your opponents with gentleness. To quote Proverbs 15.1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You are gentle. You're trying to win them, not crush them. And then Paul explains how to do this in verse 25. What is the heart that you need to have to be gentle towards them? God may, perhaps, grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I mean, this is the heart of Paul. He has a heart for his opponents. He wants to see them saved. They are not people to be crushed, but souls to be saved. And you see a heart disposition show itself in a number of ways. Number one, he has a heart trust in God. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. You can't force someone to repent. Right when you're a hammer the whole world looks like a nail you use argument after argument after argument and you expect them that at the moment when you said these words and these words and this scripture and this scripture they say oh mercy my corrector i now understand completely the issue how wrong i was to embrace this awful doctrine you are so right i was so wrong i am changed Well, there you go. It worked. (laughs) Who else can I bludgeon into obedience? No, what will happen is people will say, okay, 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 like, which is code for, I want to stop talking about this because it's getting nowhere, and I'm going, yeah. And so, oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're right. Shut up. I want to talk about something else. You know, sometimes the best strategy is just to back off. Let them think about it. Give them space, and maybe the Lord will grant them repentance. You see, one thing about Christian persuasion is you can use all the arguments that you can. You can use your forced personality, but ultimately the Lord's going to have to change the heart. So leave the Lord room to work. There's also a heart of compassion. God may perhaps grant them a repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul understands that the real war is not against the flesh, not against flesh and blood, but against the dark powers. His enemies have been bewitched by Satan. They have been deluded by Satan. They have been captured by Satan. And Paul wants to liberate them and keep in mind Paul had really nasty enemies 1st Thessalonians 2 14 through 16 for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins, the wrath has come upon them at last. Those are strong words, but you can understand why. They followed him from place to place trying to undo his message, contradicting the gospel message and potentially sentencing people to hell. They plotted to arrest him, and they managed to do that successfully. They put him in prison. They sought to assassinate him. And you would think that Paul would want to to crack them like walnuts. And yet he says in Romans 9, 1 through 3, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. If there's a way that I can go to hell instead of them, I would do it. He never gave up on them. He loved his enemies. And J.R.R. Tolkien's *The Lord of the Rings, The protagonist, Frodo, is on a mission to destroy what's called the Ring of Power. And this Ring of Power has a certain quality to it where it intoxicates its owner, where they want power, and they want to use the power of the ring to crush their enemies. And so he's on a mission to destroy this, and as he is on this mission, he comes across Gollum, who is the former owner of the ring. Now, Gollum was a creature much like Hobbit, but when he found the ring, he was corrupted by its power. He was twisted into this awful, ugly creature. Well, Frodo and his friend Sam managed to capture Gollum. And Sam does not trust him, thinks he should be executed, done away with. But Frodo holds back on the vengeance because he understands the power and the temptation of the ring of power. He understands that he could easily become a gollum at some point in time if he gave in to the ring's power. He also has hope that maybe Gollum could somehow be rescued, redeemed, and restored. And what that does is it prevents Frodo from giving himself over to the dark side of the ring and becoming corrupted with a dark cynicism towards his enemies that wants to crush them. See, compassion for our enemies means that we still have the heart of Christ even as we fight. One of the problems with the world today is that there is no compassion on their enemies. There's a desire to destroy. You also see that there is a heart of hope where they seek to win their opponent. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If you don't have hope for your enemies, if you think that they're irredeemable, then the only option that you have for them is to crush them and to destroy them, and to eliminate them. But a heart of, of hope protects you from going down that dark road. I mean, let's say you are at a Bible study, talking about salvation, and a young man joins your Bible study, and he begins to talk about free will, and how we all have a choice in the matter. And those Calvinists, they follow a, a dirty teacher from Geneva who killed heretics. And all of a sudden, you feel this tingling sensation in your extremities. You reach for your predestination pistol, and you fire off Ephesians 1. Bang! Romans 9. Bang! Acts 13.48. And then to cap it all off, let's go to Romans. Nope. John 6. And yet the kid is still fighting. All right. Well, let me teach you about church history, about the Reformers, about Augustine, about Charles Spurgeon. And yet he's still fighting. And you're thinking, what's wrong with you? Clearly the whole room agrees with you. Clearly they see the ignorance of this little free will thinking punk And so you say, there's probably something wrong in your own heart, which is why you're not drawn to this high and lofty view of God. Mic drop. Won that one. Won that one. But let's say, do you think he will, that kid will come to you after that conversation if he's struggling with pornography? Is he going to come to you and tell you, you know what, I've, I've really been struggling with some doubts about my faith. Will they come back to the Bible study? You see, you can win. You can win an argument but lose a soul. And the problem is, if the solution is always fighting and fighting and fighting, the purpose of fighting in war is to destroy. right? And sometimes you do need to fight. You need to, you know, destroy lofty speculations. But really, the church is built. The church is built by conversions, is is built by discipleship, by coordinated ministry, by giving, by sacrificing. And, And it's just a tragedy when someone who's looking to pick a fight tries to burn down a church that took years to build. It's harder to build than to fight. You have to take the long view. So being a gentle leader means that you deal gently with opponents. You're not rowdy, you're not belligerent, you're gentle. So how does this work today? I'm going to give you kind of an example of how to approach a controversial topic with a gentle disposition. Now I could choose masking, I could choose vaccinations, But today I'm going to choose critical race theory. It's kind of a raging debate in the evangelical circles. Uh, Simply stated, critical race theory presupposes that everything in American society and history has been tainted by racism, and that minority groups will not experience equality until American society is completely reformed and changed. Uh, They single out whiteness. as our original sin. It's the privileges that you derive from your white ancestors at the expense of the oppression of um, the black ancestors. And so the means of reformation has become an anti-racist and to dismantle racist structures, right? You probably heard about it. And many evangelicals have used the terms uh, whiteness, systemic racism, equity, and social justice. Now, one thing you could do to fight it is to um, post article after article and statement after statement and Twitter feeds to own the critical race theorist. You can announce to the world that this is where I stand. I can do no other, so help me God, right? And Facebook gives you a reason of of doing that. Or or you can deal with it in, in a different way, which is, interpersonally Uh, if you find someone who let's say uses whiteness equity social justice and uh, systemic racism how do you approach that especially if they're an evangelical number one find out what they believe don't assume it it could be that they just read a book They walked into uh, the local Lifeway Christian bookstore. They picked up a book. Uh, They've been thinking about George Floyd, and they want to kind of figure out what's going on and what's all the fuss about. And and as they read it, it it makes a lot of sense to them, and so they start using terms like equity and systemic racism. Now, what you could do is you could tell them that, well, actually, you're a social Marxist now. You must embrace the whole theory because you just use whiteness. But you know what happens when you start telling people what they think? They say, no, I don't. And you respond with, yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And all of a sudden, it's a quarrel. I mean, do you like it when people put words into your mouth? You see, there's a lot of language that people are using that they may not understand what the words mean, and so you find out, what do they mean? What do you mean by that? Secondly, it's important to make charitable judgments. Don't automatically assume the worst in people, especially your fellow uh, believers. You know, I I know that you care about justice and that you care about your black friends and that you wanna be somebody who has a lot of compassion on them and be empathetic towards how some of them have been mistreated. I also am glad that you recognize that racism is an awful reality. It is very much present, I believe the same thing and I also appreciate that you want to own as much sin as you can. And, you yeah, that you want to own being a racist, if that's what it means. And I don't want to stop you from that or unduly unburden your, your conscience. So, but I have some, some questions, right? So you assume the best, you make charitable judgments, you affirm what they get right, you affirm their heart. Then you just ask them to reconcile their beliefs with scripture. How would you biblically define this issue? I'm curious, I mean, what would you say the biblical issue is? What's the greatest need of the oppressed? What do you think their greatest need is? Is equity promised in Scripture in this world? You make it a, make it a dialogue. And you say, let's just talk about what the Scriptures say. Fourthly, make the argument about Scriptures instead of data and statistics and more, right? A lot of times you can just go to straight to the data, straight to this article and this article and this article. Go to the grounds of scripture. What does the Bible say? Do you believe that we're responsible for our ancestors' sin? How do you reconcile that with Deuteronomy 24, 16? Fathers do not put to death, do not, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And when they bring up a good point, you say, "Yeah, I'm going to have to think about it. You just understand that your goal is to win them, and this is going to be happen through a series of conversations. I think one modern equivalent would be the biblical counseling movement. Back in the 70s, Christianity really embraced a lot of psychological principles. And you can understand why. I mean, people wanted to help other people. And and if you were feeling sad or depressed or anxious, you'd go to a therapist. And the therapist would kind of help you uh, work through these things. And so in compassion, you want to give to other people what was given to you. And so there was this wedding of, of psychology and Christian theology. And it took a while to kind of separate the issues, right? To call it out, say where it was wrong. But then there was another issue where you had to give them a better alternative, which was the biblical counseling movement. And now it's much easier to move people away from that because we offer something better. And so when you look at trying to move people and persuade people and win people and win Christians, you can do it with accusations and harshness and fear about where this is going to be, or you can be confident in what the Bible teaches, where you are biblically, give people time to think it out and trust that the Holy Spirit will work with the Scriptures to persuade them. Right? The goal is to persuade them gently. Proverbs sixteen twenty one: The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Right? And this is our chance to be countercultural. The world rages. They use Twitter. They use Facebook, Instagram. They use all these things to berate and accuse and bully people into following the, par- following the party line. Agreed? And I think sometimes we are afraid that they're going to do that to us. And so we want to fight fire with fire. But the way to really challenge and change the world is to show the heart of Christ where you can be gentle because ultimately we are going to trust God to do His work in their hearts. We are to correct with gentleness. We are to persuade with gentleness. We are to restore with gentleness, with kindness, righteousness, faith, and trust. And so. Does it mean you might get walked on? Yeah. Does it mean that you might be hurt and you have to actually apply this passage about not being resentful? You bet. Does it mean that it's going to take a lot longer than it otherwise would? Yeah. Does it mean that you have to stay in this contentious relationship and still try to love them even though they're really hard to love and you can't write them off? Yeah, it does. It does. But you know, it wasn't the Lord kind to you how long did it take him to get through to you? It took me about. It took him years to get through to me. And the Lord, he was gentle with me. He did not treat me as my sins deserved. He sent many people who were patient with me and kind to me and loved me and helped me to see things, and I'm still seeing things to this day. And so as the Lord has treated you in his gentle way, as he has been gentle and lowly with you, His heart is that you, in turn, are gentle and lowly with others. He's calling you to be a gentle leader. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am just so grateful for your kindness and your gentleness towards us. And I pray that we will be a church known by our gentle persuasion, that we will be courageous, that we will have conviction, that we will fight against those ideologies, but do it in a way that honors you and seeks to save those who have been swallowed up by those worldly ideologies. I pray for the young men and the young women here that they won't take this as an indictment, but as an opportunity to to show Christ in their lives, that they will strive to be gentle leaders. And Lord, that you might even use our gentle demeanor to reach a world that desperately needs it. There's so many people who have been chewed up and spit out, who've been trampled upon by so many people. May they find a refuge here and find men and women with the heart of Christ who deal gently with sinners and seek their restoration and repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.